let's not forget that this is God speaking to us inerrantly, infallibly. It's the only rule of faith in life that we've been given. We always give thanks to God for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sakes. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word during great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but in every place the news of your faith toward God has gone out, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Father, we thank you that you've gathered us here. We're not here by chance or by luck, as some people think, but we're here by your design, and we rejoice in that, and ask now that you might be pleased to to be with your servant, to keep his words um, pure, and so we might leave this place uh, loving you more, trusting Jesus better, and hearing more, more keenly the Spirit as he guides us into all truth. And Father, if there's one here who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, has not trusted in tasted and seen that he is good and had their sin debt delivered. We pray that this might be the time that you do that for them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we saw the first week, uh, one of the purposes of this book is for the Lord to instruct his church, this young, nascent church, Thessalonia Church to instruct them in some doctrinal errors that they've struggled with as well as some moral deficiencies. And then uh, we saw last week that how that just as we as parents, when we need to correct our children, we start with some, some proper instruction on the front end before we move straight to the instruction and the correction. Uh, Paul does that. He begins with that wonderful uh, verse 1. And we pick up more of it here in verses 2 through 10 when he begins telling them how thankful he is for them. And you see the three main points there. 
The first, thanksgiving for a threefold evidence of gospel power in their lives. The second, thanksgiving for a life of gospel living in the world. And then third is a commendation. He thanks them for commending his ministry so that his ministry can go on uh, without any delay and without any obstacles. <clears throat> in other words, they're living a life that doesn't become a stumbling block to anyone. And so we're going to look at those three points. Underlying all these verses, 2 through 10, though, is a testimony to the, the power of the gospel to change lives. Or, as Paul says elsewhere, it's the power of God unto salvation for his people. That's what the gospel is. When it's properly proclaimed and understood, when the Spirit applies it as only the Spirit can to a dead heart, people are saved and it makes a difference in their life. And so we're going to look at this little in brief survey fashion, these few verses. And if we hear it properly, we should be as encouraged as they were by the thanksgiving that Paul offers for them. That was the intent for them to be encouraged even as they were being instructed. And so hopefully we'll be in, encouraged this morning, this afternoon rather, even as, as we're encouraged. So the first thing, Paul begins with thanksgiving for a threefold evidence of gospel power. Now, I want to just say one word before we hop into those, that threefold evidence and that is that he's, he's praying for them. And that alone would have been encouraging to them. I don't know about you, but it's always very encouraging when someone says, I've been praying for you. Or I get a text like I did this morning from a friend in Mississippi. said, praying for you. And, uh, and I, I'm sure you as believers, you're always encouraged when someone lets you know, particularly when you're having some difficulty, but not just then. And we should let people know all through the day, all through the week, and all through the months and into the years, uh, all the time, not just in hard times, but in good times. I'm praying for you. And tell them why you're praying. Now, that leads us to a question on that point. Do you pray? A, and B, do you pray for others? And then we have to confess, right, that it's, it's often I pray for myself. And I may pray for myself, and I pray for my, my, my wife, and I pray for my, my children. And all of a sudden we realize our prayers are very self-focused. And so let me encourage all of us that we do pray for ourselves and for our wives and our husbands and for our children, but pray for the rest of us too. You know, I, I would like them. And I need them. And so do each of us. Well, then Paul, in the midst of this wonderfully encouraging thought to the church at Thessalonica that Paul's praying for them, making mention of you in our prayers, giving thanks to God for all of you, he, he 
tells them what he's praying, how he's praying. And you see it. He says uh, right there, he says, uh, constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and your labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's on his mind. That's what brings them to his mind. The first is their work of faith. Yes, faith does work. This is no contradiction. Paul has said elsewhere, we're not saved by works righteousness. We're not even kept by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the scripture is equally clear that a faith that doesn't work is a worthless counterfeit. It's not a genuine saving faith. And so he commends them first and says he's very thankful for the fact that, that he hears about their, their faith being lived out. Their faith being lived out. The same grace that gives us saving faith is the same grace that supplies us with living faith. It's not two different things. Got a Baptist in the congregation. I had some in my class this past week as we toured. Now, he goes on, he says, not only is he thankful and commending them for their work of faith, but also for their labor of love, their sacrificial love. Notice that love is laboring, it's working. Again, your work of faith and your labor of love. The church at Thessalonica is showing forth the gospel by loving one another sacrificially. So that brings up the question, doesn't it? Are we loving each other sacrificially? And we can start in our homes and then we move to our church. That's one thing to say, I love you. That's the easy part, isn't it? But do we? And do we show it? You know, James has some pretty harsh words for people who say, oh, you know, yeah, here you are. We love you. Go be warmed and filled. And yet they have genuine needs and you could meet them. And so love is not just something we say, it's, it's something we do. That's that whole aspect of agape, agapace here in the text, that sacrificial love, just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We're supposed to love one another that way. And then he goes on, he says, not only the work of faith and labor of love, but perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope perseveres. You can read this both ways. Really, you can't, you can't decide from the Greek which way to read it. So you just read it both ways. We persevere in hope and we hope persevering. Our hope endures. And notice, it's in Christ. We're called to persevere as saints. And in persevering, 
we have hope. We're called upon to hope. And as we hope, we persevere. It's all-encompassing. And it's in Christ. Paul says it this way in Titus chapter 2, that the church, he says, is looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. He just said the same thing here. Works of faith, labor of love, persevering in hope in Christ Jesus. And notice, by the way, where all this takes place, in the presence of our God and Father. Coram Deo. In the presence of God, in the face of God. We, 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 we live our faith out, we live our love out, we, we live our hope out in the presence of God. We do it, in other words, as unto the Lord. Paul says that elsewhere too, right? In Colossians. Whatever we do, do it as unto the Lord. He's just saying the same thing here. He's just fleshing it out a bit more here than he did in the book of Colossians at that particular point. The Lord is the one who motivates us. The Lord's the one who pushes us on. The Lord's the one that propels us to love him. Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. He makes us want to and he gives us the ability to do it. And then he rewards us as if we did it ourselves. What a wonderful, gracious God. Now, next on this, on this first point, we read on. Keep reading. Knowing, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Now, just notice that. Knowing these things, he says, are evidential of the grace that's been at work in you, the genuineness of your faith. And, and, it's, and, and it all backs up on the fact that you, you're beloved by God. Now this, this, not to go into all the details of the grammar, but this goes back to eternity. He's not talking about time and space per se, although he is, but he's talking about this is something that started in eternity has a present reality and will always continue. We are beloved of God. But then he really focuses on the eternal aspect of it, his choice of you. That's the word elect. His election of you. That's eternal. And has an outflowing product. How? Well, he goes on to say, our gospel didn't come to you. This gospel of God's eternal love, this gospel of God's eternally electing love, it didn't come to you in, in, in some other manner that's not authoritative. He says just the opposite. He, he says, knowing brothers beloved by God, 
cho- his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's the Spirit of God that brings power to preaching and brings conviction in the preaching of the gospel, but also in the receiving of the gospel. So Paul begins with, this is the evidence. Nothing's left to chance. God does it all and brings it to fruition. Then we have to ask ourselves, These Thessalonians, this church at Thessalonica, Paul is saying, and he's thankful for it, that there is ample evidence to convict you of being a Christian and of being a Christian church. Well, then that puts us in the the position to say, could the same be said of Covenant Presbyterian Church? is the work of our faith and the labor of our love and the enduring nature of our hope so placarded, not just here in this building, but out there, because that's where Paul's going with this in a moment. He's saying people everywhere have heard about it. Everywhere that your testimony is gone, they know about it, and this is what they know about you. Well, that's convicting, isn't it? Is that what they know about covenant? Is that what they know about each of the members of covenant? Well, then second, thanksgiving for a life of gospel living in the world. This is just moving on from that last point. And he says in verse 6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Elsewhere, Paul says that one of the things he wants is for people to imitate him. And then he also says that we're to imitate Christ. Which is it? Yes, both. We should imitate holy men. One of the things I said to the class this week was how important it is. I asked this question at the Elmwood Cemetery. I was reading a portion from a biography at one of the tombs. And, and I just said, uh, before I ask, how many of you have read this particular biography from which I'm reading... Let me ask you a a more convicting question. How many of you regularly read biographies of godly men and women? I had 26 people in my class. Now, there were two guests along, two couples who were along as guests. The only two people that raised their hand were the two guests, and both of them were ministers. 26 students studying for the gospel ministry, do not regularly read biographies. I told them they needed to get saved. No, I said, you need to repent. You need to know the godly men and women who've gone before us. We stand on their shoulders. Martin Lloyd-Jones one of the great preachers of the 20th century, pastor of the Westminster uh, in in, uh, London, a Welshman, 
It was his regular habit, and he encouraged uh, his membership to do this, as well as young men studying for the ministry, that the evening time was the perfect time to read biographies. The reason is, is reading biographies is not very mentally demanding. Now, it's one thing to read philosophy or systematic theology or science textbooks late at night, but it's another thing to read biographies. They're easy reading. You open a nice biography and you learn some wonderful things and, and suddenly you realize, oh, I want to imitate him. I want to imitate her. That's a wonderful thing. I want to do that. I should do that. That's godly and holy. And then we find out of that we're, we're, we're imitating Christ. We're following Christ more closely. They're living a gospel life in the world. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word during great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice, this was no rose-colored glasses group of Christians. They came up in the midst of affliction. And as we know from the first sermon, going back to Acts chapter 17, where you find Paul laboring with these people in live time, he later then is going to send Timothy back to check on them because the, the persecution went on. It continued. And so he's saying that they received all this, that he, he preached uh, in the midst of great affliction, but they received it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I was away this past week. I've just alluded to that. I know that we had at least one elder because they were, they were all through the week keeping up with one another, checking the weather for Wednesday night, what should we do, and then as we got to the end of the week, finding out what was going on with members out in their communities and their neighborhoods. And I know from the number of text messages I saw, there was at least two elders who received the affliction of snow this week and ice with great joy. I don't know if it was the joy of the Holy Spirit or if they just love snow that much and love getting out in their Jeeps, hint, hint, and just seeing whether they can go or not. But we don't usually receive affliction with great joy in the Holy Spirit. And yet Paul's commending this this young church for that very thing. Notice, by the way, this is a young church. That means there aren't many spiritually mature people in this church. And yet they act pretty mature, don't they? That's kind of convicting. Particularly for those of us who are of, of, of an older age. And how knowing how immature we can act sometimes and live sometimes. And yet this young church was setting the example for the churches in Macedonia and Acacia. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. For the word of God has sounded forth from you, 
not only in Macedonia and Acacia, but in every place, the news of your faith toward God has gone out. Do you see what's going on here? They're following the example, and where does that example lead them? It leads them to sound forth the gospel. The word literally means trumpet. Trumpet it. This is the way one Greek lexicon puts it, that this word carries the idea of an of echoing like thunder or sounding out as a trumpet. In other words, these are not quiet, wimpy Christians who keep their faith tucked away for Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, maybe, and Wednesday nights, maybe even less. But this was the way they lived because they followed the example of godly men and women. You say, well, they're following examples of Paul because he says so, but you said women. Who could that be? Well, Timothy's along for the ride, right? How are we introduced to Timothy? That he grew up under the gospel ministry of his mother and his grandmother. Grandmother Lois and mother Eunice. I think I got that straight. So he's following their examples. Timothy is. He's following Paul, certainly, his example. Now the Thessalonians are following in that same line. The gospel is being lived out in their lives. We, the church, and we as individual members of the church, we, ha- we imitate someone. The question is, who do we imitate? We set some kind of example. Well, the question is, what kind of example do we set? And we declare something. And the question is, what is it our lives are declaring? And by the way, did you notice it's not just by living out an exemplary life, but there's also the speaking forth of the gospel news. Well, I just live a life of example. Sorry, doesn't get it. A Christian lives an exemplary life, but part of that exemplary life is speaking forth the truth. And as Peter says, speaking it forth in meekness and gentleness. As Paul says, speaking it forth in truth and in love. So, will our... Imitating will our examples, will our trumpeting, will it be redeeming? Well, that's what gospel living is. It presents a redemption message and a redemption life to this world that's dying without hope. Third point, we're going to make it. Thanksgiving. For the commendation of the power of the gospel and the ministry of the word. That's in verses 9 and 10. A commendation. He's thankful that these people's lives commend his ministry. Now this is the short of it. 
the church at Thessalonica, or Thessalonica rather, could have hindered Paul's ministry. How's that? Well, if the people of Macedonia and Acacia were hearing, well, you know, Paul's been in Thessalonica and he preached this same message and they live like the devil. They fuss and fight all the time. And you know, they're doing some wonky stuff in worship services. And what Paul's saying here is, if you'd been living like that, following the wrong examples, speaking the wrong words, my ministry would have been harmed. Because you all know, you've all had this, this happen to you. Well, you know, I would go to church, but, you know, I used to go to church, and that church was always this or always that, always talking about money, always this. And I just, I just don't go to church anymore. Okay. That may be valid. It may not be. But the fact is, something other than Jesus Christ became a stumbling block to that person. And we have to be careful to never let anything we say or we do become the, the, the possibility of a stumbling block to someone. If Jesus Christ is not the stumbling block, and, and we're told in Peter's first letter, he's the only true, legitimate, valid stumbling block. If there's anything else that's causing people to stumble, then we have put that in the place of Jesus Christ. Now let me throw a few examples to you. If your politics becomes a stumbling block to someone knowing Christ, then there's something wrong. If your social agenda, and here I'm speaking words that are, are current in our church in the PCA right now. Churches that are known as much for their political agenda and social agendas as they are, or maybe more so, maybe first in the line of order instead of Christ Jesus and him crucified. I've never told you this. In the church I pastored years ago before I was teaching at the seminary for those years, I didn't know it, but early on in my ministry, I, said, I, I knew I said this. I'm, I'm conscious of what I say most of the time. But I didn't know until three years later that it was a problem and that there were certain members holding it against me. And it became a very big problem. But I said this. I pointed out the doors. I said, if, if anyone drives past this church and sees that sign and sees our name, I won't name the name of the church to protect the guilty. But if they, if they think anything first other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, the good news of gospel, Jesus, by grace through faith in Christ, if they think of anything else, if they think of those people are homeschoolers or those people are public schoolers or those people are, are private schoolers or those people are Republicans or those people are Democrats, if they think of any of those things or anything else first, then we have failed. We do not have a legitimate testimony in this city. Well, that came back in three years to be a number one reason why I should no longer be their pastor. 
you said this within the first month of your ministry, and we disagree with you. I said, then this is not a church in that case. I was younger then. I said things like that. I would probably say that again. But thankfully, I'm in a place where I won't ever have to say that. But this church was not about anything else. And Paul says, in every place the news of your faith toward God's gone out, I'm thankful so that we have no need to say anything for they themselves report about us. Those people that are hearing from you and about you, I don't, have to, I don't even have to say what I believe anymore. They, they already know what I believe and teach because of what you believe and teach. Isn't that marvelous? Now, Paul's not sitting down and stopping. He's just saying, you're not throwing any problems out there for me. I can just keep on sailing. I can go right on preaching the gospel and not have to say, well, you know what? They, they, you know, they, 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 they got that wrong. Or they're, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And here's why. They themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you. And here, they had heard this. They had heard this, that when Paul went to Thessalonica and he preached, the gospel was received in power and in the Holy Spirit. And those people turned from idols to serve a living and true God. And they started waiting for the coming of Christ again. Looking forward to it. Because they'd been rescued from the wrath to come. Isn't that marvelous? Thanksgiving for the commendation of the power of the gospel. Their lives affirm the truth of Paul's preaching. Well, those are the three points that I want you to see. Genuine salvation produces a church that is vibrant, but it's not just vibrant inside the walls, and it's not just vibrant on Wednesday nights, it's vibrant out into the world. And everywhere people meet believers from Covenant Presbyterian Church, from the First Presbyterian Church of Thessalonica, they think of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And they see works of faith and they see labors of love and they see, what else? A persevering hope, a hope that doesn't quit when hard times come. It doesn't quit when good times come. It's always there. It's always steadfast. I hope that we're all waiting for Christ's coming. You remember those words that I use every month when I administer the Lord's table from Hebrews 9 that for all those who eagerly await Christ's coming, there will be no mention of sin. Isn't that marvelous? That's where these people lived. And knowing that Jesus Christ will rescue us from the wrath to come. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word. We ask that you would cause every heart in this building 
to receive it, to believe it, and that it might indeed do just what he did for the church at Thessalonica. For the, every individual there, you turned them to God, away from their idols, and they went out serving the living and true God. Would you do that for us now, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.